And the problem is, and this is what we're facing every single day, we're trying to normalize Donald Trump. Donald Trump is an ignoramus. He does not understand domestic or foreign policy. And so we're sitting back and thinking, how we have somebody who is going to walk into the Oval Office dealing with Russia when he doesn't understand the first basic thing about arms control? Part of the problem is that Donald Trump is not capable of understanding either what Russia did. He's not capable of understanding the difference between our nuclear weapon triad. He does not understand that over the last 30 and 40 years, Republican and Democratic administrations have sought to reduce nuclear weapons. Donald Trump is essentially foreshadowing an arms race. He is a dangerous ignoramus. And so when we're now confronted with the situation of trying to analyze this information, we're asking someone who is not capable of understanding Respectfully, this. John. As those of you who listened to my recent conversation with David K. Johnston may remember, that was me discussing the Trumpster on a recent broadcast of AC360 towards the end of the year. This is Jonathan Tassini, and this is the Working Life Podcast. I'm going to repeat a lot of the introduction of that podcast for this one because it's pretty relevant. And of course, all of our podcasts are archived at workinglife.org. And I do urge you, if you have some time, to go back and listen to my conversation with David K. Johnston because it was quite illuminating about the nature of the Trumpster. Now, here is my commitment to you and my goal that I hope you might share with me every single day for as long as Donald Trump is in office. I will never refer, unless I make a mistake, to Trump using the title of the office he is about to assume. Never. Our goal, at least my goal, must be to delegitimize him, undercut him, resist and rebel against his racism, bigotry, misogyny, and pathological lying not to mention the terrible policies that he is going to try to implement with that band of people in his cabinet and inside the White House. And just as an aside, as I said on CNN, he is an ignoramus. And by that I mean he has no interest in or curiosity in domestic or foreign policy. His policy by tweeting shows someone completely lost and were someone not at all interested in learning, since by his own evaluation, which he said publicly, he is so smart, he doesn't even need to get the daily intelligence briefings. Now, one can be skeptical of what the intelligence agencies and the military want to tell any president, but for crying out loud, when you are running around threatening a new nuclear arms race, as the Trumpster has done, for fuck's sake, someone might be able to explain to this idiot that it's actually been international policy, including U.S. policy under Republican and Democratic administrations, to try to reduce, let me emphasize again, to try to reduce the stockpile of nukes, not expand them. You want a domestic policy example? Now, the Trumpster, you may remember, just after he was elected, ranted and raved about rolling back the Affordable Care Act, the so-called Obamacare. But he also said he'd be open to keeping the provisions for pre-existing conditions and the provision letting young adults stick on their parents' plan until they are 26. Well, duh, what pays for those two provisions, the pre-existing condition 
and letting young adults stay on their parents' plan is, in fact, the whole ACA, which by pushing people into plans, whether you like it or not, or paying a fine if you don't enroll, finances the two provisions that this idiot says he wants to keep. And Trump doesn't understand this. Now, part of our problem is, and I've tried to do this on CNN a lot, is we have to challenge the traditional media, which wants to normalize his behavior and which wants to get down on its bended knee, which it does before any president, all in the service of gaining access. We have to tell the traditional media to act like journalists. I know this is a tough job. Now, I want to say Trump should not be our only obsession. There is a lot of positive stuff happening out there, largely thanks to the political revolution ignited by the Sanders movement. I've talked about that a lot, and I'm going to spend more of the podcast time over the coming months on the political revolution and on work and on the economy. But destroying Trump and his minions, the xenophobes, the billionaires who want to cut Social Security, the climate change deniers who are going to let the planet die has to be on the agenda. Today, I'm going to devote most of the podcast to an awesome conversation with Michael D'Antonio. Michael is the author of The Truth About Trump. Now, I met Michael one day in the green room at CNN. For those of you who don't know what a green room is, it's where you hang out until you go on a show. And we agreed to connect on a podcast one day about his book. Uh, in person, Michael is, as you will hear him here, a very soft-spoken, unassuming, but he does have this sparkle in his eye when you talk to him. But he knows Trump, or as he often just calls him Donald, probably better than a lot of people. And Michael, as I read your book, which was a fascinating book, The Truth About Trump, which I encourage people to pick up, I noticed a lot of things. And I wanted to start with this from your book where you write, and I'm quoting, his companies went through four massive bankruptcies and they failed at any number of businesses. And according to countless lawsuits, reports, and individual accounts, he and his organization have victimized thousands of investors, consumers, and bystanders. And now in 2016, Trump is a candidate for president who is devoid of ideals and committed to little beyond his will to power. Now, that's an end quote. Of course, you wrote this book before the election, but that was a pretty startling comment that this is a man who is about to enter the Oval Office, who's devoid of ideals, and essentially has ripped off lots of people. He has. I, I, he's a very cruel person. Uh, I actually spoke to him about this and asked him, is there ever a point where somebody is too little for you to crush? And he said no. You know, his idea of playing capitalism is that you deploy all your resources against the competitor or really against anyone standing in your way. And when I asked him that, I was thinking about these homeowners and crofters in Scotland who refused to sell to him when he was developing a golf course, and he just made their lives miserable, uh, including building walls of earth and planting trees atop them in order to surround their homes in shadow. 
And I thought, you know, only the cruelest developer would do something like this. But he just thinks if he wants it, he should get it, and he'll pursue his goal by any means necessary. And I wrote down this other sentence that was in your fine book. Again, it's called The Truth About Trump. And you wrote, quote, Menace has long been a defining characteristic of the Trump modus operandi. Now, that's a pretty scary thing to think about someone in the Oval Office having that kind of characteristic. He enjoys menacing people. This is why in the mid-1970s, he let it be known that his driver was armed and a tough guy. And the whole idea was to make people think that he was capable of something that other people wouldn't be capable of. Uh, and then later, whenever I visited his offices, there was this presence of security. Um, other people kind of pushed that image to the side. They'd like any security elements to be... Uh, but Donald wants it all to be in your face. So the idea is to hire the biggest, toughest-looking guy, make sure he has a gun that's evident, and intimidate whoever enters Donald's space. And so he'll do that with his wealth as well as his security team and even things like... Um, the architecture that he uh, favors is all about intimidation, about creating something on a scale that would make human beings feel small. You know, this is, it's a really funny thing. You, the main impression you get from Trump Tower, and especially the public spaces, is that it's a cold, threatening kind of environment. Uh, Nothing in it is pleasing and human scale. It's all just designed to intimidate. And garish. And, think, and garish you know, beyond belief. It's, it's just the ugliest aesthetic. Though I, I confess to it, I confess to never having set foot in that building, but I gather from descriptions of it that it is not a pleasant place to be. And one of the things that our listeners on this podcast might be curious. They're probably raising their eyebrow. You actually spent a bunch of time with Donald Trump in writing your book. Yes. Um, we met five times. I probably spent eight hours with him and, and an hour and a half each with his three adult children and his two former wives. The one wife I didn't get any real time with is the one he's married to now, Melania, even then, and, and I think we're noticing this as she's uh, resisting the role of First Lady, she wanted nothing to do with the public Donald Trump and his life. Um, but I did get to know Donald and the people around him pretty well. They strike me almost like the Saudi royal family in the way they're treating <laughs> 
the, looking at the government, meaning the, the royal family in Saudi Arabia treats the whole kingdom as theirs to do whatever they want and to make money and to do it very secretively and make their own deals. And it strikes me that the Trumps think of that, the U.S. government, in the same way. Well, the royal quality is, that's a really apt observation because they do think of themselves as a kind of royal family. They have explained to me that they think of superiority being a genetic thing, that people are the product of superior mothers and fathers and that it's in the genes. And there should be no doubt that Ivanka is sort of the crown princess of the Trump empire and that Eric and Donald Jr. are princes of a sort. And this idea of royalty, a kind of fascination with royal families, can be traced to Donald's mother, who was really obsessed with the British royal family, which is odd for a woman who grew up in a very poor part of Scotland. Those gods tend to detest the monarchy, but she was really captivated by the pageantry and the bloodline. So these folks really do think that they are born to rule, and that's why someone in their 30s can, with no uh, governmental experience, or in Donald's case, a man who's 70 years old and has never worked for anything other than a family business, feels completely entitled to be president of the United States or to run the government. So experience and knowledge and aptitude other than that conferred by genetics don't impress the Trumps. And we'll come to the aptitude and knowledge in a second. And I just want to underscore the notion that where you have a place that has a princess and you have a place that has princes, then of course you have to have a king. And so all that whole structure suits Donald Trump quite well in terms of his narcissism and people then looking up to him as the head of that royal family. Well, right. I mean, there are lots of examples of people referring to Donald as the king throughout his life. And when his kids talk to me about him, they uh, work in an office one floor below his, and they would refer to him or our father and cast their eyes toward the heavens because his office was one floor above, but I actually think they thought of him as almost (laughs) a celestial being. (laughs) So we're dealing a little bit with his character. We'll come to some exact facts. But one more thing on the character that I actually caught in your book, again, the truth about Trump, You mentioned an interview he had with Barbara Walters, and in that interview, he was asked by Walters, if you could be appointed president and you didn't have to run, would you like to be president? And his answer at the end was, it's the hunt that I believe I love. So it made me think that, in fact, this is what he loved was the campaign, the hunt, the attention. But does he really even want to be president of the United States? I'm not sure he did. You're, you're, you're touching on something really important. I, 
I think that he wanted to win the nomination. He very much enjoyed dispatching all those uh, Republicans who couldn't stand toe-to-toe with him. But I'm not sure he had any real strong desire to run the United States government and to determine policy and to have this burden. And it is such a burden. Um, If you watched uh, Michelle Obama's recent interview with Oprah Winfrey, the thing I came away with was her repeated references to the weight of the office. It's a really hard job. Well, yes, and, and look at enough. look at all the guys who, and they have been all men to date, all of them end up looking older, their hair grays, they lose hair, and you actually have to wake up and do that job every day. And it struck me that the two things Donald Trump thinks about every day are, number one, his bank account and his brand, and the second thing is how can he hit on women either legally or illegally and take their clothes off? <laughs> Or grab them. Or grab them. No, grab them in strategic places. (laughs) Yes, and that's Um, why I meant. That's why I said uh, illegally or legally. I mean, I do believe, and no journalist has seems to want to follow up on this. I do believe he did commit the crime of sexual assault. There's many examples. Eleven women who have come forward already, all of whom have no connection to each other. They're very different, and I think they made very credible claims. But I mean. This is a man who's not motivated by looking at facts and thinking deeply about policy and has shown complete ignorance about policy during the campaign and during the debates. Well, and that's where the bankruptcies are instructive. He tended to fail at businesses that required attention to detail over a long period of time. He's, he is, when he says he's a deal-maker, he, he is pretty good at that. You know, he's good at seeing an opportunity and negotiating his way to a profit. Um, he's not very good at managing huge numbers of employees directly. He's not good at keeping track of how things are going day by day in a service industry like uh, the casino business. He fails at that, and and I think it's because he gets bored easily, and he's just not wired for it. Uh, you know, that's why he doesn't want the daily brief on security issues. He doesn't want to be burdened with all that data. Um, you know, the tragedy of that is that daily brief allows a president to recognize when something different is reported to him. Or uh, one day it may also be her, but for now it's him. And he's not up to that. He, he doesn't want to be that person whose responsibility is to sense when something is amiss and act in the nick of time. You know, we saw with George Bush and 9-11 where that got us. Um, yes, in the, in the it, for people who don't remember, there was a warning months before 9/11 in the presidential uh, daily brief that Osama bin Laden was planning an attack of similar nature that happened in 9/11. It was ignored both by George W. Bush and Condoleezza Rice. Very specific warning, and you know, I I actually think those who said that 
Donald would have preferred to change places with Hillary Clinton on election night were right. I think if he could have won the popular vote but lost the presidency, that would have suited him just right, because then he could go around saying, well, more people loved me than loved her. And she got it because of the rules of the game, and I was cheated, and he could spend four years tormenting her. Instead, he's the guy who's going to be tormented by reality for the next four years. I'll be right back with my conversation with Michael D'Antonio. I just wanted to remind people that this is the Working Life Podcast. And of course, we'd love you to become a supporter of the podcast. You can do that by going to workinglife.org and clicking on the podcast tab. Not only can you subscribe to the podcast there, but you can become a financial supporter of the podcast to make it possible for us to do all this work around the podcast and even expand what we do at the podcast. And now back to my conversation with Michael. And in your book, there was something that caught my eye. I've read that Donald Trump has been sued uh, 3,000, maybe 4,500 times from people who he's cheated, who he's not paid. I remember seeing on TV Mark Cuban, who's another billionaire, saying in his entire business career, he thought that he had been sued maybe six times or a dozen times, and Trump has been sued thousands of times. And you write, there's two... uh, portions that I want to quote or refer to. One, you wrote that Trump's peers in business reported that he was honorable and consistent, although he has sometimes been criticized for being slow to pay his bills. And then in another place, you wrote about his boasting, how he was a great baseball player. And you said he is sharing the truth as he feels it. So I'm trying to figure out here, what's the difference between the man we know as the cheater, the person who is stiff people, the person who lies versus this reality that he says, or you seem to indicate, he's sharing the truth as he feels it. Well, the, the point about him being trusted by his peers, by that I mean extremely wealthy real estate developers and ah. others who can go toe-to-toe with him. Not the um, average Joe. In the, not the average Joe. The if you are the guy who got stiffed on carpet installation at a casino, well, that's just too bad. And you're not going to report that you think Donald Trump is a trustworthy person to do business with, because in your experience, he's not. And there are thousands of those people who reported that. Right, hence the thousands of lawsuits. He tends to be sued by a lot of small businesses. And there are people who sue him for non-payment. I mean, it's a, this goes to the subject we talked about a little earlier, about how he's happy to do the worst to the little guy. Um, and, and yet I think he's reluctant to really do battle with someone who can match him. Did it floor you then, you who knew him, who's willing to do the worst to the little guy, that there he was trying to portray himself as the champion of the little guy? No. Um, 
it's it's sales. I mean, this is all salesmanship, and he's very very good at selling, and he's not really interested in the truth when it comes to selling. So that again goes to the the idea that he was the greatest baseball player in New York State when he was in high school. You know, his experience as a ball player was against teams like the Little Sisters of the Poor. He he played in a very uh, minor uh, high school league and in a period when New York State ball players who would go on to be all-stars in the major leagues were also playing. So for him to say that he was the single best baseball player was just ridiculous. But I think it's all feeling to him. You know, he thinks that these feelings represent truth. And during the campaign, what he did was try to make people feel that there was a national security emergency, to make them feel afraid of Muslims, for example. And once people caught that feeling, he could then offer himself as the strong man who would shelter them against this reality that wasn't a reality. And it worked. And he he would say that the ultimate measure of whether he did well was his victory, not any loyalty to facts or principles or the Constitution. Those things don't even come into his frame of reference view. Right. He's, he's not aware of any of that stuff. That's pretty uh, astonishing, although not surprising. And speaking of principles and practices, let's talk a little bit about green mailing. Now, for my listeners here, everybody is familiar with the principle of blackmailing. When you blackmail somebody, you're threatening them with something you know about them or potentially violence. But green mailing, which was pretty popular during the Ivan Boski and Michael Milliken Raider days of the 1980s, 1990s. Some people probably who are listening weren't even born back then. But green mailing was a little bit of a different thing. It was basically a practice where you purchased shares in a firm and you would challenge a firm's management or leadership and maybe even threaten that you might take over a corporation. Usually you only bought two, three, four percent of the shares. But what you would do then is you would force management to buy back your shares, and typically that would drive the price up. Now, it did nothing for the inherent value of the company in terms of making better products. It did drive the share price up. And then you would cash your shares in. And Donald Trump was an expert green mailer. So give us an example of that. Talk a little bit about that. Well, I know he did this. I, I'm trying to think if it was Holiday Inn. Yes, it was Holiday Inn. And this was during a period when he thought that he might um, compete with a Holiday Inn subsidiary that did casinos in Atlantic City. And his goal was to disrupt Holiday Inn and to turn a very quick profit on a pretty substantial purchase of shares. Um, What's interesting about him is that in those days, and I suspect it's still true, he wasn't interested in buying stock as 
even you know one or two years of investment you know he he never thought of it as a long term investment in fact he thought of the stock market as a casino and so when he bought these shares and then talked down the holiday in um management and then talked up his interest in taking over the company um it started to rise and he cashed in um none of this had anything to do with reality about the effectiveness of the management in fact the management was pretty good but he was willing to do this to manipulate the market with he, the cash that he had on hand it was a rare moment when he had a lot of cash on hand and this is something that i think people don't grasp is even if he does have a substantial net worth and there's huge debate about what it really might be he's not that liquid so if you hold interest in a giant office building but other people own a huge portion of it as well disposing of that and creating cash is difficult so in the rare cases when he entered the stock market in a big way he tried to pull this kind of scheme and in fact i'm quoting now the facts from your own book the price of the share when he started buying the shares of holiday inns was $62 per share and then he made all this noise and it pushed the stock up to $71 a share he then sold his share at least he bragged that he made $35 million just in that run up now we don't ever trust any figure that Donald Trump uses because we've seen in the past about his wealth and his assets that he lies and makes them up but he did essentially push the stock up and the main point is, like all the scammers on Wall Street, all these raiders, all these people who are just out to make a buck, they didn't add any inherent new value to the company. They just pocketed money. It did nothing for the inherent value of the company. And he did that at other places in other circumstances as well. Well, he did. And, you know, this kind of, this is almost like um, well-established within the rules trickery. And... He loves this kind of thing. Another really good example, uh, even more creative, was when one of his casinos was doing very poorly, and his father went into the cage, you know, to buy a whole bunch of chips. I, I'm not sure how many it was, I think, but it I, was... I, I remember this story. I think you wrote that it was $2.5 million. that sound right? Yes. It was a huge amount of chips. And then they were placed in a bag and he walked out. And those chips were never used at any table. And I think that the this was a loan to the casino that was actually recorded as profit. And it allowed Donald to keep on operating. And I think... Who, who but Donald Trump would imagine this kind of thing and then try it? And he got away with it. And his father was p- perfectly willing to collude with him in this. And it, it's, it's really the ultimate expression of his way of doing business. 
And one of the other things that I noted about Trump, and I've made this point on TV a lot over the past year, that he's a bigot and a racist, or at least has pushed bigotry and racism. And you talk, uh, thankfully, you talk a bunch about in your book how he pushed the whole birtherism theory. And for people who don't remember what that is, I assume that most of my listeners do, it was a theory, a racist theory, that Barack Obama was not born in the United States and the corollary to that, that he was some secret Muslim trying to take over the country. And you talk a bunch about that and his role in that. So give us a little flavor for that. Well, the fascinating thing about Trump and birtherism is that he took it up after everyone else had dropped it. And, and these were, in some cases, uh, pretty fringy characters on the racist right who gave it up. And there were also some members of Congress who asked the questions. You know, you can always ask a question about something and say, well, I'm just looking for answers. And the questions were themselves racist and efforts at delegitimizing Obama. And these representatives said, well, you know, it is starting to look and sound racist. I'm going to back off. Um, But it was Trump who picked it up when no one else wanted the issue. And I think it was because he saw an opportunity. Um, He also was able to identify himself as the leader of this movement against the first black president. And I I think he was willing to blow that dog whistle to let everyone who was skeptical about there being an African-American family in the White House. And, And often it was the whole Obama family that offended these people. Uh, and to keep pushing it, it it lasted for five years. And he sort of scooped up and harvested all of that anger and ultimately all of the votes attached to that resentment of Obama. And, and he went on and on with it. I mean, I, I remember reviewing some of the video from David Letterman in that time period, and he would have guests on like Dr. Phil. And Dr. Phil would say, well, of course, he doesn't have a racist bone in his body. And, you know, I think in this case you have a choice. You can either say he's a racist or you can say he's an opportunist with no principles. Neither of those is a good thing to be. But he was one or the other, and he, he, he expanded this whole thing to include denigrating Obama's academic record um, to suggest that somehow no one knew him during his college years, when in fact, Trump's academic claims are the ones that really stand out as uh, implausible. And he was the guy that no one remembered because every week he would leave Penn as soon as he possibly could in order to go home and work with his dad. And he didn't show up back again in Philadelphia until the last minute to attend classes. And speaking of the other way in which he's unprincipled, in addition to being a racist or a bigot, whether he, as you point out, actually believes it or he's using it as an opportunistic moment, 
let's talk briefly about his bankruptcies. And I'm quoting from your book. This was fascinating. This is in relation to U.S. Air, but it's true in the way he looks at other bankruptcies. He basically uses other people's money, and he doesn't give a shit if other people are saddled with the problem. Now, I'm not, that wasn't your quote. This is the quote from your book. This course only made sense to those who knew that under U.S. bankruptcy laws, a debtor who owed billions was a greater threat to his lenders than they were to him. If Trump used the courts, he could tie up his assets for years and escape most, if not all, of the debt. If his creditors stayed in business with him, they stood a chance of receiving more of what they were owed while avoiding the enormous legal fees that accompany such bankruptcy cases. So they had a mutual interest in letting Donald Trump stay in business through bankruptcy, and it let Donald Trump continue to live his lavish lifestyle, which to me just seems like it's actually a reflection of the system being totally corrupt. Well, the system is totally corrupt. You know, during bankruptcy, a lot of operators collect huge fees, millions of dollars, to stay in place as the figurehead in a business or the operator. And, and that was the case in Donald's casino bankruptcies, where it was determined that having the place be called Trump Taj Mahal was more valuable than having it be called the Taj Mahal. Now, what's funny about this is I'm not sure where they got the idea that there was value attached to the Trump name. Uh, it it may have been true, but it's a in that case it was a rather down market brand. Um, people who flocked to the Trump casinos were going to spend a hundred dollars on a slot machine and then get on a bus and go home. He wasn't interested in the high rollers, and actually that was to the frustration of his executives. But to your first point, he was among the first to really be too big to fail and to trap his lenders into sticking with him because it was just too expensive to unwind his companies and take the assets away from him. And, you know, part of that issue of his assets was how often he lied about his wealth and he would attack people who questioned it. And I loved in your book, in your discussion, when you quoted somewhat the oracle of business, which is Forbes magazine. And in 1999, you're quoting Forbes. They estimated his wealth at $1.6 billion, which is pretty substantial, by the way. And it was off by almost $3 billion, he said, meaning he was saying the amount of his wealth was far higher. And Forbes, the Forbes editors, and I'm quoting now from your book, their reply was, we love Donald. He returns our calls. He usually pays for lunch. He even estimates his own net worth. But no matter how hard we try, we just can't prove it. <laughs> <laughs> well, he complains every year about the Forbes number because he understands that it has a little bit more weight than his own uh, claims. This, this is a strange thing because I haven't heard of anyone else lobbying the editors at Forbes to occupy a higher place. Although I have been in a billionaire's presence when the Forbes richest edition arrived, and he 
had to stop our conversation in order to look through to see where he fell on the list. So these guys and gals do compete over their position. You know, ridiculous as it is for mere mortals to consider, you know, it matters to them whether they're the 50th richest person in the world or the 45th. And in, in Donald's case, this is everything to him. And it's why I don't think he can give up his interest in his companies. I, I think, and by interest, I don't mean financial interest. I mean active curiosity about how they're doing day to day. It just is inconceivable to me to think that he wouldn't be inquiring about the performance of these companies and thinking up ways for them to capitalize on his presidency. And and this is such an important point. I'm really glad you brought this up because right now as we're talking, there are all these shenanigans going on and false claims that they're going to somehow divest Donald Trump of his businesses, that his kids are going to take it over and run it. And I was always of the belief what you just said, because he lacks complete impulse control. He acts like a 15-year-old when it comes to women, when it comes to the way he deals with foreign leaders through Twitter. It seems to me the same thing is going to happen with his businesses, which means that if he does that, and I expect this to happen repeatedly, he will be breaking the law every day. And I could see a situation where he is faced with impeachment within a year or two because even Republicans, when he breaks the law, and I'm sure that will happen, are going to have to react in some way lest he bring the whole party down. Am I wrong about that? I think your fear is well-founded. I think that he could very well uh, cross lines that should be firm and uh, inviolate. But I... You know, I am not sure who would take up the cause of disciplining Trump uh, up to the point of impeachment, if if we think that's possible or merited, given the fact that Washington has been captured by him. Um, even people who have been really devoted to free trade and devoted to uh, holding the line on deficit spending, which are two things that he's committed to uh, a new course on, are are standing by him. Well, I would say so, I would say this. Uh, they said that about Richard Nixon back in the day, and then there was a line that even the Republicans had to cross. Now it's true the Democrats controlled the Congress at the time, and I think the hard right might be sort of willing to do that because they would be mollified by the notion that Mike Pence would become the president if Trump wasn't. Uh, my point really was, you know, at some point, Trump doesn't have the loyalty of the Republican Party. And I think that if they had to face a deep corruption scandal, I could be totally wrong about this, by the way, but if they face this corruption scandal that could bring the whole party down, the question was, do we cast off Trump and we get Pence or do we keep with Trump? I think the answer would be the former. Yeah, I think you're right. And I think um, given the way that people play politics these days, they might be willing to put the country through the crisis of an impeachment in order to bring Pence into the presidency. You know, I've been continually uh, surprised by 
how far people will be willing to go in order to make their agenda uh, prevail. You know, you look at what's gone on in North Carolina, where the Republicans have stripped the incoming Democratic governor of his powers, um, and you think, well, that that's that's beyond the pale, but they did it. And so much of what's gone on in Washington has seemed to push what's extreme further and further out. Uh, maybe they would. Maybe they would say, well, this is our way out of Trump. Maybe we can get away from this guy by impeaching him and bringing in one of our own. Mm-hmm. Well, we'll see what happens. Now, the last two things I want to take up, and then we'll let you go. One of the things you wrote, which, man, I was ranting and raving about on TV multiple times was, you know, I'm a geek, so I read these actual transcripts of the debates. Um, I'm a geek, and I like to read the transcripts of the debates after they're over. And what struck me, and I noticed this actually at the debates themselves, was how disjointed he was and how he could not actually speak four or five sentences together and make any sense. And when you go back and read the debates, that's when it really hits home. And you wrote... Then there was the style of his rhetoric and reasoning. Trump spoke in such a disjointed and ungrammatical way that fact-checking his statement was an exercise in futility. And I thought that was a brilliant statement on your part. Well, he doesn't string four or five sentences together, and sometimes he's not even capable of completing a sentence, you know, of, of getting four or five words together in the right order. But I I don't think he intends to. What's fascinating about him is he practices a kind of doublespeak that allows for interpretations to be made afterwards in almost any direction. So if you are really imprecise and use certain hot words, so at one point I, I recognize that rape is one of his hot words. He likes to talk about their rapists coming across the border, and he understands that that is a visceral word, and that he'll get your attention with it. Um, Murder is another word. Um, We don't know what's going on. You can say all kinds of stuff without really saying anything, but eliciting a strong emotional response. And and this is why after he tweets, uh, people go to the press and spin the tweet in many different directions. Uh, it's because his whole way of talking has been designed from the start to allow for reinterpretation. You know, I think of him making a business deal and explaining in the room with a partner or you know the other party in the deal how he wants to make the deal and it'll be good and it'll work this way and that way and then the lawyers get involved and the original intent is thrown over and by the time you're done with this 100-page contract you're not quite sure what you've agreed to and i i think that this is this is how he operates and I think it's been going on for a very long time. I, I actually think it's been going on since his childhood. And it's, it's his nature now to do this. 
And Michael D'Antonio, and your book is The Truth About Trump. The last uh, question and discussion point I want to have is to bring in the point you make referring to Christopher Lash's book, The Culture of Narcissism, which I thought was really interesting. And I wonder whether you think that what you quoted here reflects in some way the rise of Trump is a little bit about our society. I don't want to put everything on one thing and why the election turned out one way. I think people are too easily prone to do that. But you you write, and I quote, they are themselves harmed by a spiritually hollow society that exalts and rewards the self-promoter and the super salesman while relegating everyone else to isolated anonymity. What did you mean by that? Well, I think today when we all have social media presences and the social media image that we put out there is like a brochure for a resort, um, we've all become salesmen. We're selling everybody on ourselves and trying to persuade the world that we're somehow worthy. And, and I think this is because in a mediated age, we've come to recognize that if you aren't seen on a screen, you may not matter. And this is profoundly sad, but it's something that Donald intuited and recognized and exploited during his entire lifetime. You know, he, it began with exploiting the print press, but very quickly went to television and then online. And I don't know where we end up with this. You know, there are always going to be the rewards of real life for us. And I think people are trying to get their bearings in this environment. But the election, to me, was a victory for the illusion of salesmanship. And no one is better at it than him. Donald has never manufactured a product of any worth that anybody benefited from, but he has sold people tons of real estate and hotel rooms. And, you know, these may be things that serve a momentary need or provide the ultra-rich with status, but it's not something done on a human scale, and I think that's the most important thing to know about Donald Trump, is that he's not interested in humanity. Yes, it's time for our Robert Barron segment, and it comes just after the Martin Luther King holiday. And of course, everybody knows that Martin Luther King stood for justice, 
He stood for equality, and certainly he would have been appalled by the incredible greed that we see today in America. So in this segment, I want to focus on a group of robber barons, and it comes via a report by the international organization known as Oxfam. And this came out just on the holiday, the Martin Luther King holiday. It was appropriate that it came out. And check this out. This is staggering. It may not surprise you, but it still is staggering. Eight billionaires in the world, that's eight men, have as much wealth as the poorest half of the world. They have as much wealth as 3.6 billion people. And this isn't by chance. It's not as if this money just fell on them. Actually, what Oxfam blames this incredible, astonishing concentration of wealth into the hands of eight men, they blame it on, number one, corporate tax dodging. We know all about that. You've listened to the podcast enough to know that we've talked about how corporations dodge taxes. The squeezing of workers, not surprising again, the anti-unionism, the way in which the sweat of the brow of workers is robbed and taken and put into the hands of a few and the overall obsession by these companies of what they call maximizing shareholder profits. And because it's only eight men, I'm just gonna run down quickly the list. Some of these names are gonna be familiar to you. Number one on the list, again, is Bill Gates, the founder of Microsoft, whose net worth is $75 billion. Number two is Amancio Ortega. He's the founder of Inditex, which is known as Zara. $67 billion in wealth for Mr. Ortega. Number three, and this is a name that's gonna be familiar to a lot of people, is Warren Buffett, the CEO of Berkshire Hathaway, $60 billion. Number four, Carlos Slim Helu. He's the Mexican owner of Grupo Carso, which is essentially a big telecommunications company. It's a conglomerate. He's worth $50 billion. Coming in at number five is Jeff Bezos, who many people know is the CEO and the chairman of Amazon, and Bezos is worth $45 billion. Mark Zuckerberg, the CEO and founder of Facebook, $44 billion. Larry Ellison, who's the CEO of Oracle, which is essentially a software company, he comes in at $43 billion. And rounding up these eight billionaires is Michael Bloomberg, the owner of Bloomberg, passed mayor of New York City, $40 billion. Now, no one human being should ever be allowed to have this amount of money, but let's be very clear. These guys have this money. They have this wealth from exploiting people. You exploit people by having a monopoly, for example, as is the case with Bill Gates. You exploit people by defeating and attacking unions, which is the case certainly of Amazon, Facebook, and Bloomberg. Bloomberg has never been unionized, which means that people don't get decent wages and decent benefits. And all the wealth that these companies create, that the workers create, all that wealth flows into the hands of a few people, eight men in this case. And when you think of the other side of the equation, when you look at the idea that the wealth of 3.6 billion people equals the wealth of eight people, you understand that on the other side of the equation are people who don't have enough food to eat, don't have proper housing, don't have proper health care. They make pennies in many, many countries. They are, in fact, slave labor in many countries for some of these very eight people. That is obviously immoral, but it also explains exactly why there's a revolt going on 
around the world, whether in the United States where people are fed up with the two parties that let these kinds of people accumulate this kind of wealth all, all around the world, where you see in many countries people revolting against the system. And there's no question that some of that comes out in ugly forms like racism and attacking immigrants, but at its heart, this is about class warfare. And these eight people and the people that surround them and the people like them that may not have as much wealth, may only have, and I say only, a few million or a few billion, these are the people that are creating the conditions for world revolution for the reason that people are coming out of their homes and are furious about what these kinds of wealthy people are doing. So this week, the Robber Baron segment anoints these eight richest billionaires as the Robber Baron of the Week. And that's all for this week's podcast. I want to thank my guest, Michael D'Antonio, and of course, as usual, our audio editor, David Hebden. Don't forget to go to workinglife.org and subscribe to the podcast. You can do that at workinglife.org and click on the podcast tab. And there you can also become a financial supporter of the podcast so we can keep doing the podcast, producing it and expanding it actually, the work of the podcast, doing a bunch of travel, going to talk to workers. We'd love to have you on board and I'll see you next week.